Yeah. This is, there's a reason that this is like a ancient conversation, isn't it? Um, so this uh, caveat, this is going to probably feel already like more in, in the world and the politics and stuff than maybe we are sometimes. Um, but I think it's also a good moment for us as, uh, you know, as the church to sort of reflect on some of these things. Um, and as you guys know, since, last, since the events uh, of last Saturday, um, you know, it was basically called kind of like Israel's 9-11 and so forth and so on. Um, where Hamas, a Muslim extremist, extremist group, invaded Israel. And since then, this just immense conflict has kind of come underway, and thousands of lives uh, have been lost, and hundreds of people are held captive, and, and all of this is sort of going on, and, and all these gruesome stories are, are flooding the news and things that, you know, I'm just not going to repeat. And, and um, but you know, except to say that a lot of families and civilians and little children and, um, have lost their lives, and so just really utterly horrific stuff. So kind of so many questions begin to arise, um, or, or should be arising for us, and, uh, you know, on the heels of nations' leaders saying, we support, we support Israel, and, um, and religious leaders, and, and then all the backlash and all the discussion around, uh, around all of that, because what does it mean to blanketly support uh, a nation or a nation's agenda, even if it is retaliation against, uh, you know, something like that? And so, questions, right? What does it mean to be pro-Israel? Uh, and better yet, whose side is God on? right? So we've got to figure that one out. And who bears God's image in this fight? Um, you know, bef before Caleb was like, so, you, so you're going for it, huh? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, you know, in, in total transparency, I was going to be like, what's, the, you know, okay, it's my turn to, it's my turn to lead on Sunday. Like, what's, e you know, like, what's easy here? Oh, I like this story about you know, where, where God, you know, hide, Moses hides in the cleft of the rock and God's glory comes by. Oh, that's a good one. And it's like, oh man, like this is like the dash lights are coming on. And it's just like sometimes you just have to like grab that, that hard thing because it's, man, it's right there for us, isn't it? Uh, in these texts, right? Who bears God's image here? So if you've been following, right, these, uh, you know, Israeli leaders have like called in the reserves and of 300, over 300,000 troops to quote like eradicate uh, Hamas from the Gaza Strip who have like maximum like 30,000 quote unquote troops, right? What does it mean to be pro-Israel here? Whose side is God on? Who bears God's image here? Uh, obviously, one believes they do, and the other believes they do too. So, um, you know, I'm going to be a bit transparent with you guys, as I tend to try to be all the time, but at the risk of coming across either cynical or apathetic or uncaring or so forth and so on, um, you know, pretty much, we were kind of talking about this, like for our entire lives, you know, for many of us, 
um, you sort of just get this sort of like Christians are meant to be pro-Israel agenda. And then further, like Americans are meant to be pro-Israel agenda because we're Christian and as scripture says, right, pray for Israel. Uh, and so here, here's an inquiry. Who is Israel? Am I right? Like, is Israel like, you know, what, it, what is it? What is Israel? Better question, maybe sounds really dumb. Where is Israel? Am I right? Uh, are we talking about a nation state? Are we talking about everything that resides within a certain, certain like geographic boundary? Does the Bible mean for us to pray for anyone that waves this certain flag? Um, right? And so, uh, you know, if there's one thing we seem to know about Jesus is that at least he was certainly not nationalistic. Uh, right? Everyone uh, wanted him to be, um, or should I say, everyone wants him to be. Um, but in fact, Jesus walked in Israel, right? Feet on the ground in a place that was occupied by Rome, uh, right? By the empire, the, you know, the, the, the Romans who colonized like Europe and hung people on crosses, uh, and so everyone wanted Jesus to, to wave the Israel banner, to, to, to go against Rome. Um, but of course he didn't, and he actually died on one of their crosses. So what does it mean to be pro-Israel here? Whose side is God on, and who bears God's image? Uh, our lectionary passages, again, are just inescapable today. So uh, if there's a Bible near you and you want to follow along again, feel free to. But our Exodus story here in chapter 33 is on the, heel, on the heels of uh, kind of what we talked about last week in that, that well-known chapter of 32 where <laughs> Moses comes down with the tablets and all of a sudden people are melting their jewelry and making a golden calf and it's like, you've got to be kidding me. And so the context, the setting for Exodus 33 is God is angry, okay? There's, there's your context. And I'm trying not to dr like dramatically like belittle this scene, but I feel like as a parent, I've, I have some sense, I'm going to say, of like what I believe God was feeling, okay? And if you don't think that God feels, you haven't been reading your Bible, okay? Uh, so 33 starts, and God is so upset, he says, literally, you're going to have to go on to the promised land without me, because if I go with you, bad things are going to happen, okay? And, and it's like, and you laugh because we've all been there, you know what I'm saying? Like, like if I don't remove myself from this car, from this relationship, from this room. Uh, you know, if you guys ever see Emily at like 10 p.m. driving around the neighborhood, you know this is what's going on, like, uh, like many times, you know, because this is it. Like, you know, it's like if I don't, like, like it's not going to go well if I stay here. So um, and verse 5 says, uh, for the Lord had said to Moses, say to the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do to you. Like, you, your parents have verbatim said that sentence to you. Like, go, 
Yeah, yeah, that it, 100%. So verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, see you have said to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. Now if I find favor in your sight, please show me your way so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. He, God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he, Moses, said to him, if your presence will not go, do not bring us up from here for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us. In this way, we shall be distinct I and your people from every people on the face of the earth. It's interesting, isn't it? So this term nation comes up, and you're like, wait, wait, wait. like nation? Na nation, nation? Right, like a geographic place? Well, of course not, because they were nomadic, uh, right? Well, yeah, like the place with the flag, and the place with the politicians, and the temple, and the city, and the polity, and the culture, and, well, actually, no, nope, no, no, nope, and no, right? Because none of those things, right? None of those things at this point, right? None of that. And so it was, it was the people of the Lord, right? Literally this, this Hebrew word goy, this nation, uh, this people, right? So what made them God's people, right? They were in covenant with this God. They were in relationship with this God. They were not being the oppressors, but they were learning to be, they, they were in the midst of learning what it meant to be a people who blessed all other peoples and and that was what it meant to become Israel here and it says that that it's about it's interesting here in this text to be distinctly the people of God meant to have God go with you uh, to not worship idols and false gods right uh, so here in this amazing text God actually changes his mind Moses pleads with God and God has compassion uh, and God does go with them so what, what if, okay, scandalously, because of who God is and what Jesus does in his life and death and resurrection and the ark of salvation all through scripture and everything we know about history, right? That actually, anytime we see this term in the Bible and even in the Old Testament, this, this term Israel, what if that just means like the people of God, right? What if that just means God's people, Right? This is how you and I, non-Jewish people, uh, get to have this as part of our history, right? Uh, because there's something larger going on here for us. So what does it mean to be pro-Israel? Whose side is God on and who bears God's image here? You know, if you've been um, tracking, right, this conflict between Israel and Hamas, like this is like decades, it's like decades old, and it's, and it's not one-sided, right, if you've, if you've seen it, because uh, both sides have imprisoned and held hostage and, and, uh, and done all these things, and so now if you've seen in the news this week that there is, uh, like Harvard and these other universities have been uh, with these student groups for justice, justice in Palestine have been marching and chanting, uh, right, for Palestinian justice, which again, of course, comes across fairly anti-Semitic. And, um, and so now universities like Harvard are having to decide whether they're going to uh, keep their donors funding 
or silence free speech, you know. And so there's all of this, all of this is sort of building. So you see this, this you know, because both sides have blood on their hands. Um, the temptation is to make this sort of like good, evil, binary out of the whole thing, uh, right? Because of the actions of those in power over certain territories. Um, so uh, if you're not tracking, Carl kind of already brought it up. No, he's gone. Uh, but it's kind of the story of the Bible, isn't it? Uh, it's kind of the story of the Bible. Uh, it's like God rescues the people out of captivity. Uh, like they, they go with him. They're shaped. They're changed. Something happens in the midst of their well-being and their success where they slowly become the oppressors themselves. Then they go into exile again. And then the story repeats. And all of a sudden, you get Egypt and you get Babylon and you get Assyria and you get Rome. And we're just like... I mean, does any of this ring a bell? Like, is any of this reflective of your own walk with God? Like, our own relationship and our own story, uh, right? The way that, that we are healed and then at some point we are somehow back to the old thing again. And then we are, and, and it's just like, what? Mm, this, this, feels, this feels familiar in sort of a, a deep sense, right? And so a question arises, are you the people of God? So what's fascinating about this, this Jerusalem and Israel, you know, as a, as a place is that both Jews and Muslims have, have uh, experienced this as a holy site, uh, right? As a holy place for thousands of years. Both have encountered God in this space spatially, have lived shoulder to shoulder, uh, you know, and certainly many Muslims do not support Hamas, and certainly many Jews do not support the eradication of another people group, right? So what does it mean to be pro-Israel? Whose side is God on, and who bears God's image here? Uh, so let's look at one more text. Uh, our New Testament reading, uh, which is very familiar for us, where they're trying to also trap Jesus in a, in a binary trap, which no one ever can. Uh, so, you know the text. Um, verse 15, Matthew 22. Then the Pharisees, Jews, went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, who were also Jews, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show difference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Uh, so this was a complex issue, thus the trap part, okay? Uh, so the, the Pharisees were kind of uh, with the majority of Jews in their thinking that they didn't, uh, like Levitical law would have allowed you to actually pay this tax and still be a Jew, okay? So there's, but... So they paid the tax, but they were like, we really, 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 really don't like it. Okay? And all the other Jews were like, yeah! You know? Then there were the Herodians, which are also present in this story, who were actually pretty well for paying the tax. Uh, because, like, think like King Herod. Like, they got power out of it, right? There was, like, there was some incentive there for them. Then there were, like, the nationalists, Okay? Um, these, these people are like, like, 
Storm in the castle, right? You know these people. You've seen these people. They're the zealots. Uh, they did not pay the tax, okay? So controversy. They're trying to catch Jesus here. Uh, and so you see this special uh, Roman tax had to be paid in a Roman coin, okay? And um, Jesus, in the text, clearly he had none on him. Uh, and he was like, well, let me see one. And of course, the Pharisees were like, oh, I happen to have like eight right here, you know? And uh, he pulls one out. Uh, and a big part of the controversy was actually uh, about the inscription on the coin, okay? Uh, the inscription read, Tiberius Caesar, Divi Augusti, Filius Augustus, Pontificus Maximus. Okay? Everyone got it? Cool, 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 cool. Tiberius Caesar, August, son of the divine Augustus high priest. The coin itself was idolatrous in nature. Okay? It's almost, it's not a one-for-one, one, but almost, like, imagine living in a country where, like, you don't worship the same God as the empire, and on every single one of your coins it said, it, like, in God we trust, or something like that. But it's not a one-for-one. One. But it should make us all stop and think a little bit. It's, it's just interesting. Uh, yeah. Verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? And they answered, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Give therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God's the things that are God's. And when they heard this, they, they were amazed and they left him and went away. The Jews are using the currency of the empire, right? And Jesus kind of puts on his economist hat. And he's like, because he had one of those. And, uh, you know, and so because we could kind of say, like, this is a conversation about economics. And there's this, there's this, like, Rome's little economy, Rome's little currency over here, and whatever it's worth. But in God's kingdom economy, um, we deal in a different currency. So uh, I wanted to print this quote for you guys, but there wasn't enough room in our little handout anymore. So I'm going to read it slowly. Uh, it's from Wendell Berry, and uh, it's out of his, uh, his book, What Are People For? Um, I think, no, I take that back. This is from his uh, essay on the two economies, so never mind. He writes, if the great economy, God's kingdom economy, okay? That's when he, when he talks about the great economy, he's talking about God's kingdom economy, comprehends humans and thus cannot be fully comprehended by them, then it is also not an economy in which humans can participate directly. What this suggests, in fact, is that humans can live in the great economy only with great uneasiness, subject to powers and laws that they can understand only in part. Thus, there is no human accounting for the great economy. This obviously is a description of the circumstances of religion, the circumstance that causes religion. He goes on. Of course, if we see the human economy as the only economy, we will see its errors as political failures, and we will continue to talk about recover. 
It is only when we think of the little human economy in relation to the great economy that we begin to understand our errors for what they are and to see the qualitative meanings of our quantitative measures. There's a lot in there. In other words, there's a certain kind of perspective, I'm going to say, that beckons us here in this text, and especially today in the midst of like such war, right, and such conflict. Uh, it's interesting in the, in the Greek here, it says that they were shocked. They were amazed. Jesus blew their minds, okay, as opposed to telling them a parable like he does to answer things and getting really uh, crypto uh, and, and, and ambiguous. Um, it doesn't really, that's not what really happens here. Uh, he kind of answers them. Um, and, and they thought they were trapping Jesus, but Jesus like traps them, but with just the truth. Um, and he sort of pulls back the curtain and gives them some altitude. Give therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God's the things that are God's. What's God's? <laughs> right? Who bears God's image in this fight? Wow. Like, wow. I guess, I guess we all, I guess we all do right? Imagining the Pharisees, right? They have this thing memorized, right? We all do. People, people bear God's image. We're, oh wow, we're all created in God's image. Whose side is God on? Oh wow. Well, I'm not so sure that there are clean sides, I guess, if we're all created in God's image. What does it mean to be pro-Israel? Is it paying taxes to Caesar or not, right? Is it supporting the war effort or not? What if, what if this means living a life shaped by the knowledge that, that of, of knowing you are God's, right? A life marked and shaped and formed and moved by being created in the image of a God, a God who loves, a God who transcends boundaries, a God who heals, a God who walks among the people, a God who proclaims freedom from the, for the captives, and a God who dies on a cross. And so, um, wrapping up this morning, yes, pray for Israel. Like, we have to pray for Israel, and we have to pray for Jews, we have to pray for Muslims. Let us pray for all people, right? Let us pray, church, for the wounded and the mourning and the hungry and the lost and the displaced. I, I don't think that God is interested in the geography um, as much as invested in the people. And I don't think that God is um, much interested in our, in our golden calves or in our flags and our politics and our economic gain or even our sacred sites. Um, I believe God is interested in children and the marginalized and the well-being for all his creation. And so I hope that we can take caution in the world of how maybe we're trying to squeeze our little economy into, into um, you know, trying to squeeze God, I guess, into our little economy. And our God who isn't, isn't held captive by Egypt, any of these borders or any of these things. A God who isn't held captive by Rome or by the religious authorities, which is fascinating. 
um, and that as, a, as God's people that we can actually, we're, we're part of something else that, that is transcending and inviting people into something larger uh, in love. So, some things to marinate on. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks um, this morning. Hear our prayer, God, for your people. A people who uh, is far from our physical touch, but are very much suffering and very much in need of touch. Lord, we do pray this morning that you would be with them in this conflict, knowing that all of these people are your people and all of these people bear your image, God. Help us to mourn with them. Help us to do whatever we can to be in solidarity and be your means of blessing as marked in what makes us distinct uh, as a people about your kingdom and your mission in the world, Lord. We ask that you would please go with us all um, as we journey toward your great economy kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen.